If I walked into the Satanic Temple, I'm assuming that there is a building, the Satanic Temple, is it? Is, yeah? Correct, okay. in, in Salem, Massachusetts. If, if, if I walked in there, if I walk into any other uh, place of uh, worship, uh, there'll probably be a sign, well, sort of almost their mission statement that I would, I would uh, be welcome to. What would be, in a sentence, the mission statement of the Satanic Temple if I, as I walk through those doors? Uh, we don't have a mission statement on the doors, right. but anybody's welcome to come in. It's set up more like an art gallery where people can come in on their own and tour through. Well, isn't that special? Yeah, that is pretty special. A Satanist going about the country. In that case, he was in Great Britain, telling everybody about the wonders of Satanism. This is Dr. Paul, and you have found Dr. Paul's worldviews. Yes, Satanism, where Satanists don't believe in Satan. <laughs> but he's getting a lot of airtime. Now he's crept into our public schools and he doesn't have a mission statement on the door but he's got it on his website we're here to facilitate communication and mobilization of politically aware Satanists secularists and advocates for individual liberty the mission of the Satanic Temple is to encourage benevolence and empathy among all people. We embrace practical common sense and justice. As Satanists, we all should be guided by our consciences to undertake noble pursuits guided by our individual wills. We believe that this is the hope of all mankind and the highest aspiration of humanity. It's a world view, ladies and gentlemen, and it is as vacuous as the people who created it. These Satanists who don't believe in Satan, he's got them right where he wants them. On the road to hell, and thinking, we're going to be benevolent because we should be, uh, says who? Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, just thought you would enjoy that brief little introduction there. That's what we talk about here on Dr. Paul's Worldviews, and then we examine them. Now, we're not going to delve into the Satanic Temple today. Just thought you'd find that to be interesting. We're going to keep on here with the Christian Constitution. Because by laying this foundation, then we can come back and destroy nonsense like that put out by Lucian Greaves and the Satanic Temple. Welcome to the program. And for those who have recently joined, there was a person by the name who says his, his name is Barabbas. <laughs> He's decided to follow. Well, uh, welcome to the program. Barabbas, although I'm not sure if you're trying to pull everybody's leg or trying to pull my leg or whatever, but you've decided to follow, so welcome, uh, please behave. And to everybody else around the world who is listening to this, welcome back. I hope you find this to be a blessing. I hope you find this to be a way to strengthen your life, that if you claim to be a Christian, you will walk with not only humility, but with a sense of encouragement and confidence. Because as I used to tell my students when I was teaching many years ago, particularly Christians, we didn't try to make it a, a big deal that you were a Christian or anything like that, but I simply told them, if you're a Christian, that's okay. It's all right to be a Christian. In, in a world where so many hate Christians, I'm telling you, it's okay. It's the only way to be. So if you're a Christian, I hope this builds you up in 
some way here, particularly in a biblical fashion, because our feelings are not exactly the the best way to go about you know determining truth, much less our morals and standards. It's got to come back to what God has to say, otherwise it just doesn't mean Bo Diddley for the most part. We have been talking about the book of Romans here, and particularly in chapter 9, and we're all the way to verse 19. In the previous podcast, we dealt with what happened to the nation of Israel. And really, chapters 9 through 11 deal with that very question. And the apostle Paul tells us how much he is brokenhearted for them, how much they possessed so many of the things of God that whereby they could be a, a godly people and they fell on their face. But by them falling on their faces, we will eventually learn this opened up the door to the other sheep that Jesus said that he had, the Gentiles. And that according to God's promise, those who were elect of God would then enjoy those very things that caused well, it really caused Israel to stumble, but Israel never did fulfill. And so now the Gentiles are as much the children of God as those converts, like the Apostle Paul and others, Messianic Jews today, they're children of God. And by way of extension almost, Paul is saying that, you know what I said in Romans chapter 8, talking about you know, the eternal security of the believer, that once you're uncondemned, you're no longer capable of being condemned again. The Apostle Paul says, you know what? The reason why that is is because salvation or even selection or election is contingent upon God's mercy and compassion. He used several illustrations. The last one being that when God was dealing with Pharaoh and letting the people go, letting God's people go from Egypt. And he says to Pharaoh, you know what? I made you an example. I wanted to show where the real power is. It's not in you. It's not in humanity. It's in me. And for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. And we saw in uh, in the book of of uh, Genesis where where Pharaoh is it says his heart is hardened. Well, it was, but God helped to do that so that he would eventually be broken. And I said, you know what? That's the way the Word of God works. When God speaks, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to either soften you so that you're capable of receiving the things of God, or it's going to harden you. And I hope many of you were become more pliable to the things of God, whereby you can take them in and then apply them, that you would be more and more like Christ. That brings us to today, where... Paul is going to be answering some contentions. He regularly did this. It's something that all Christians should do. You don't run away. When the going gets tough, the going gets going. The Christian doesn't. But we see too much of just the opposite today. If things get tough, the Christian, you know, folds like a house of, car, a house of cards. The Apostle Paul did not fold. He took on the contentions against Christianity head on. Now, in fact, just recently, uh, you know, when I took on the whole Christmas thing, I'm still getting nasty comments about that. Not directed at what I said, but at me. And I'm, I am standing right here. I'm going to be like Martin Luther. This is where I stand. There is nowhere else I can. I'm standing on what God has to say. There's nowhere else to go. You can attack me all you want. You can call me all kinds of nasty names. 
starting with F and stuff like that. It doesn't matter. Because, see, ultimately, you've got to deal with God. I'm not God. Never will be. Never will be a God. I'm just little old Dr. Paul here. I'm growing in grace as a sinner who struggles like the Apostle Paul did, and that's the best that I'll ever be. Those people who want to attack my character, my reputation, the things that I say, you know, because they don't like that. And like, but like I said, they don't necessarily attract what I say because I'm trying to point them to the Word of God. No, they want to attack me. You're just committing a fallacy. You're conceding the argument before you ever get into it. You have to address what God has to say. And the Apostle Paul does this here in verse 19. Because you see, God said he's going to have mercy and compassion on whom he will, not according to anybody else's will, but according to his will, things get done. Well, there are going to be people going to come along and say, hey, well, wait a second here. You're forcing yourself on us. We have our free will and liberty too. Doesn't it count? So he starts out in verse 19 and says, you will say to me then, these contenders, these uh, uh, adversaries, hostiles to Christianity, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? I mean, recently I was dealing with the deconstructionist, and I've talked about in previous podcasts, the person who has since run away, doesn't want to talk about it anymore. This was one of her problems. She didn't like this. How could, how could anybody dare infringe upon human free will and agency? Why does he still find fault? He's just made us a bunch of automatons. We're a bunch of mannequins. No, 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 no. The, the question seems innocuous enough, but Paul says, who are you? Oh, man. The lost man, dead in your trespasses and sins, the person who's a, re a rebel against God, who are you to answer back to God? Who do you think you are? And, you know, it almost rings of what, what Job did over the book of Job, chapters 38, 39, 40, where Job, he's finally got to the point where I... I I just can't trust God here. I've got to question him. Why are you doing this to me? And, you know, if if you're a Christian worth your salt, you've done that too. I've done it. You get to the end of your rope and you just go, Lord, what am I going to do here? And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. But to this person here who's the rebel, he's, who are you to answer back to God? You're a nobody. You're a nobody. You're under God's wrath, and you are in no position to be questioning him. And then he goes on and uses some illustrations here. What will the mold what will what will the molded say to the molder? What will the person who has been created, what will he say to the the creator. Why have you made me like this? Will the molded say that? Well, if he's honest about it, the answer is no. But as most people are, they're not honest. They've got their rights. And they're going to tell God what to do. And God had better listen. Because... If he doesn't, well, I'm just going to hold my breath until I turn blue. And God says, well, go ahead. Why have you made me like this? I'm a, I'm a sinner. I recognize that. But do you have to go through all of this? Yes. Because when it comes to mercy and compassion, it's about God. We've already turned our back on God. So, yes. You've got to go through it. We earned it, and God is giving us as sinners exactly what we deserve in that respect. 
You know, if he doesn't go to the nth degree. If God wanted to, he would be perfectly just to send everybody straight to hell. That's what we ultimately deserve. But God in his mercy and his long-suffering and his compassion and his mercy doesn't go down that road. You know, the uh, Apostle Paul, he's using allusions that come out of the Old Testament. You know, this whole idea in verse 21 about the, the potter, you know, the one who does the molding. I remember clear back in high school doing some of this. In art class, we would make pots and bowls and whatever. And I remember making one one time. It wasn't one time ago real good. But still, I was the one who was in control of the clay, molding it and putting it in a certain shape and whatever, and putting it in the kiln and all the neat things that I did with it, which <laughs> weren't really that neat. But Paul is alluding back to the Old Testament. In verse 21, he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? It's a question. Doesn't God have the right to do with his creation what he wants to do? This comes out of Isaiah where it was asked, but now, O oh Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. We are there as created beings, being created by God, molded and shaped in the way that glorifies God. The answer is yes. God has, as the potter, the right over the clay, you and I, and we're of dust anyway, to make out of the same lump, we're all, and this is interesting, I like this, he said, to make out of the same lump, all of us, whether you're black or you're white or you're Hispanic or you're whatever, we're all human beings created in God's image for the glory of God. Don't ever let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Don't ever let anybody say, well, because your skin is darker than my skin, well, then I'm superior to you. That is a crock of demonic nonsense. God is the one who created all of us. No matter where you're at in the world, in your lot in life, whether you're in Australia or Taiwan or Siberia, South America. God has created all men in his own image. He makes them out of the same. But that doesn't mean they're all created with the same purpose. And I talked about this yesterday. When we were talking about election and predestination, the very things that a lot of people want to deny is even in the Bible. And they want to claim to be Christians even though the, the verbiage is right there on the page of black and white. Too many people want to take the old pen knife, you know, do the old Thomas Jefferson thing and cut it in certain strips and whatever. We don't like this verse, and we don't like that one, so we're going to cut it out of the Bible. Or, you know, Marcion did that. Or like some other people, they want to rearrange the words and, and supplant it like Joseph Smith in the, the Mormon lore he did. They want to... Make God bow to them. Because, you know, it just isn't right that God would have so much power and control and so much sovereignty. I've got human sovereignty. I've got my will too. I've got my rights. God says you have none. I created you, and I'm going to create some for honor and others for dishonor. This is the old pre uh, double predestination thing. It's, well, how could God possibly create some people for, for to, to, just to damn them and send them to hell? Because once again, creation is about God's glory, not yours. And you're going to see that here in a second. In fact, God is going to demonstrate this dishonor and this power for the glory of those who are being honored. 
He says in verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did that? And he does. I mean, this is another one of those first-class conditional sentences. It's not that God might do this. It's God already has. Time and time and time again, you go back to the Old Testament. It's 800 years of up and down, back and forth, wavering on the part of God's people as God constantly you know, redeems and then they fall back into their uh, idolatry, the people of God. And then they whine and complain about it when judgment comes and then God swoops in and redeems another generation. It's 800 years of this, but it has never stopped. It's still going on today. But it is is a testament to the patience of God. He's waiting as he molds and shapes and makes his people. As we fall on our face, repeat the same sin over and over and over as God's people are molded and shaped into the image of his son. God endures this. But on the other hand, there are those whom God has left to their devices. They don't really want to have anything to do with God anyway. They're the ones that God didn't go looking for in in Adamic parallel there. God went looking for Adam, but when it comes to those that are prepared for destruction, those are the, those Adam, the, the progeny of Adam, that God doesn't go looking for. He leaves them to their, their, their devices, to their own religions, to their own lusts, to the things that they think are pleasing to them and they're in their seclusion as they're out there hiding you know, in the world, trying to escape God's wrath. God says, no, no, no. You're not going to escape it. I'm just not going to intervene in your behalf. Why? Because I'm going to show the benefit here to those who God does redeem. He says in verse 23, in order to. Here's a purpose statement. And if you're just joining here, we're talking about Romans 9, 19 to 33. In verse 23, says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. You want to know why some people like the Adolf Hitlers and Jeffrey Dahmers and maybe the, the murderer that's in your newspaper this morning or the rapist or what? You want to know why? They're going to face the wrath of God a bit left of their devices to make known the riches of God's glory for the vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy. That's the redeemed. They get to enjoy. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to be macabre about this, but they get to enjoy God's riches of his glory in light of where they were going, had God not intervened. And that ought to bring a shout of hallelujah to every person that is blood-bought by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And you notice here in verse 23, he closes it, He says, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This gets back to the idea of predestination. This this, uh, uh, whole idea of of, uh, redemption occurring before the foundation of the world. Well, these riches for these vessels of mercy were prepared way back before the beginning of, of time. And there are four glory. That's the expectation, the the future aspect of being a Christian. We don't know, not even a, a scintilla, 
of what glory is going to be about. I can't explain to you what a glorified body is, let alone what heaven is going to be like apart from what God has said about it here. We don't know the magnitude of the glory that awaits us, the the riches of God's mercy. I don't think the, the Christian will ever fully comprehend that either because I don't think we fully comprehend the depravity of our own sin and where we came from. I've, I've said before, we are oftentimes deluded, if not deceived, by our own dishonesty about thinking how just wonderful we are. We're not wonderful. Paul has made that clear early on in the book of Romans. We're not wonderful. We don't understand the full gravity of our sin or the depravity of of our actions, our thoughts and our actions. We don't fully comprehend that. And I think when we get to heaven one day, we are just going to be blown away. I think that's what it's going to cause the the choir in heaven to sing. And, you know, some people kind of go, well, is that all we're going to be doing in heaven? We're going to sit around on harps and we're going to be playing harps and singing. It really is all we're going to be doing. When people say that kind of stuff, to me it's like, uh, are you even going to heaven at all? Because, you know, the the mercy and the grace and the glory, I think, is going to be so overwhelming. It may be a thousand years, earth time, not that there's going to be any time in heaven, but I think it's going to be a thousand years, figuratively speaking, of us just glorifying God, and we will not get tired of that because we will slowly understand it, grasp it. And at 10,000 years, you know, like the the uh, the song Amazing Grace, you know, 10, 000, after 10,000 years, I, st- I still think it'll be just so overwhelmingly wonderful that we still won't fully comprehend it all. We aren't going to want to do anything else. <laughs> Although I'm sure that God will give us plenty of things to do. But Singing the praises of the the mercy and the grace of God and listening to the angelic choir and all of the people who were redeemed, I think it's just going to be overwhelming. This is what God has prepared beforehand. But Paul says here in verse 24, even us whom he has called. Paul talked about that in what I call the, the golden lifeline. Others have called it the golden chain where, uh, you know, he had talked about being called and then, or, or being predestined and called and then uh, justified, glorified. All of these things in the past tense, even us whom he has called. And then he says, it's not just from the, the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. The other sheep, in other words, God's grace has been extended to them, whom Paul was an apostle. Peter was supposedly the the apostle to the Jews. But here is Paul saying it's going to be all-encompassing. There's going to be a whole bunch of people there we weren't expecting to be there. In fact, Paul is going to be alluding to uh, references to the Old Testament when Israel was not God's people because of the things they had done. And then they were God's people later on after God had redeemed them after years of bondage and servitude. Well, here when we get to the New Testament, it's the Jews and the Gentiles. And you know what's also interesting about this is that when a person is redeemed, all of that stuff fades away. We're all Christians then. It's not Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, male and female, and all those kind of things. We're God's people. We are God's humanity that God had, you know, had created us to be in the beginning, and we lost it. 
but because of the redemption that takes place and the calling, the predestination, and the glorification, and so on and so forth, we finally arrive at what man was supposed to be in the image of God. It's no longer tainted. And so once again, in verse 25, he says, as indeed he says in Hosea, this is one of those references. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who, her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Here, Hosea was talking about you know, Israel as his wife. I love, I love the name Gomer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know too many women today that probably would be flattered by being named Gomer. But that was, that was Hosea's wife. And she was in whoredom. And this was a picture of Israel. She had gone whoring after the, the pagan idols and the gods and left Hosea holding the bag, so to speak, and has a couple of daughters. Lower, uh, I have to go back over there and take a look, take a look at what their names were. But they're not my people, and they are my people. And these are the ones that God... I mean, we're going to fulfill that ourselves, <laughs> just in the sense that God's people, whether they are spiritual Israel or the Messianic Jews, who were not God's people at one time, all of a sudden, because of what God is determined to do to redeem some and bring them back into his fold, they are now going to be his people. The ones that were not lovely, those that weren't beloved, he's going to call them beloved. You know, it's, it's hard to be lovely when you're being or being a part of that catalog list that Paul mentioned clear back in Romans chapter 1. And we're not lovely. We're a disgrace. We're those that not only commit blasphemy against God, but then we, you know, Try to rough up our neighbor. We become murderers and adulterers. Those are the ones that are unlovely, that God now says they are beloved. Out of the Gentile faction of humanity, they were not lovely. They weren't even a part of the original program that God had delivered to Israel because God was working with them. And they fell on their face. And now because Israel had fallen away, now the Jews are being grafted, or the Gentiles are being grafted in where the Jews failed. In Romans 9.26, the Apostle Paul says, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. A completely different title. Prior to that, they're later on what what the Apostle John says they were sons of the devil, sons of the uh, the uh, well, sons of Satan. You know the the character. You know the the people who seem to be glorifying that type of stuff today in the Satanic Temple. We mentioned at the opening here. Their lot in life is completely changed. They're no longer sons of the devil. They're sons of the living God. This is because, once again, Israel fell to the wayside. They engaged in their whoredom. And God said, fine, I'm going to turn you over to that. And you'll be punished for it. Matter of fact, you'll be taken away into captivity. Hosea happened to be one of Isaiah's contemporary Minor prophets back at that time, he's predicting the same fate, the same destiny for Israel that Isaiah was. And it occurred because God's people, one of the uh, often uh, uh, repeated expressions in the Old Testament is they would not listen. They kept going their own way, kept doing their own thing, worshiping their Asherah and their little totem poles, really really what they amounted to, their little figurines that were tailored after the bales, 
That's what God, that's what, no, God, that's what God's people were doing. And so then Paul says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 27, and Israel cries out concerning, or Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Uh Uh-oh, here we go again. Paul talking about election. Not everybody's going to be saved, but only a remnant. Only a few. This almost harkens back to what Jesus talked about. You know, when he uh, he's given his uh, kingdom uh, sermon, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he gets down towards the, the tail end in chapter 7, and he talks about... Uh, well, he starts out with the golden rule. <laughs> Most people don't even know what the golden rule is. Whatever you do to others, you know, uh, whatever you want them to do to you, do to them. In, uh, in verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the, gar- uh, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The vast majority of humanity is not going to go to heaven one day. They're not part of the remnant. The leftovers that God has exercised his election and his grace and his mercy and his compassion. Only a remnant will be rescued. The rest are going to be left to their own devices. They wanted to climb out there in the the tempest of the world or run away from God. And God said, well, okay, have a good time. It's going to be short. And oftentimes, you know, and it's sad to say, I've dealt with these types of people before. They're not going to listen. They... They, they mock you, they deride you, call you names, make fun of you. You know, you're worshiping the flying spaghetti monster and all that kind of stuff. And finally, you just got to say, well, enjoy life here because this is the only heaven you'll ever know. And then when the portals of hell open, that's where you're going to be. You don't, you don't say that in glee. You don't hope that for them. You tell them that to warn them. Maybe something will finally uh, resonate with them as the Spirit of God works on them. But as I've said before, you know, if you're proclaiming the Word of God and telling them the truth, they may just be, be becoming more hard. And that'd be the case. They can't say that they weren't warned. And really, you stop and think about that as well. This is, you know, something that God talks about when people stand before His throne, that they're going to be speechless. There's not going to be argument and debate before the throne of God, before the sinners cast into hell. They're going to be silenced. So I guess in a way by telling them, you know, you're on the road to hell, bud. And it's not going to be like the ACDC thing, you know, where you're going to be glorifying, oh, the road on the highway to hell. Oh, please. Why would you want to be on that? But people... Some people seem to think that is a glorious thing. In a, in a way, I kind of understand that to a certain degree because I remember way back when, before my Christian days, I used to listen to that kind of stuff and say, I'm on the highway to hell. Well, what a wonderful thing. No, it's not. I mean, years later, I remember uh, hearing that song. It broke my heart. I was on the road to hell. I was on the highway to hell. I wasn't part of the remnant, and now I am, by God's grace. He says in verse 28, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Judgment is coming, ladies and gentlemen. You can bank on it. God has declared it. God has given us a a warning here in his word. 
And this is why it becomes all that much more incumbent upon people to read it. If you don't read it and it's not proclaimed, I mean, it's going to take you by surprise. It's almost like what happened in the days of, of Noah. And so many people seem, seem to think, well, though, it was just a fiction. Uh, it wasn't fiction. Jesus didn't think it was fiction. You know, in fact, he had said, you know, in the in the last days, it's going to be like that. People are going to be marrying and giving in marriage and having a hoot and holler good time. And there are going to be certain ones out there that are going to be proclaiming righteousness while they're building the ark and inviting people to get ready to get on the ark to escape God's wrath. And they're not going to listen. And, you know, it's comes swiftly. And there are people going to be, oh, but what did I do to deserve this? Oh, you don't. Don't even ask. If you're not inclined uh, or you're so malicious towards God, such a rebel, that you're not going to even pick up God's book and read it, then you really have no, you have no recourse. You have no position. You have no excuse other than to sit back and enjoy what God has to give you this judgment for your sin, for your wickedness. Don't cry. Don't whimper. Don't complain. You've been warned. Whether reading God's Word or just listening to this, I mean, maybe somebody, you're just so hard-hearted that, or curious that you figure, well, I'm going to listen to Dr. Paul this time. This ought to be a hoot and haul. I'm telling you, judgment's coming. You need to get on the ark. God help you get on the ark. Because if you miss the ark, you miss the person of Jesus, then hell awaits you. And it ain't going to be fun. It ain't going to be no party. I've heard several say, oh, well, you know, I'd rather go to hell and party with those and and then uh, go to heaven and be with all those, you know, stiff-shirted, Bible-thumping, you know, weirdos. It ain't going to be fun. You're going to be by yourself. You're going to hear the screams in the distance. And you're going to be in absolute torment all by yourself, thinking about the stupid things you did and what got you there. And, you know, I know it's just, to me, it's just flabbergasting sometimes. Verse 29, Paul says, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Once again, if God doesn't intervene, and that's what ought to be the sinner's plea, not to go run down and grab Jesus, you know, as part of a, you know, invitation thing, but it ought to be God have mercy on me, a sinner. In, in my opinion, having studied this for years, if you're willing to even pray that, you're in. God has already begun to work in your heart. That ought to lead to a prayer of God, please inform me. Please set me apart. Give me the capability to grow up and be like Jesus. Because as Paul says here, you know, it's really God is the one who's going to be instrumental in doing that anyway. It's not us. If the Lord had not left us offspring, if the Lord had not left us a remnant of what was the nation of Israel, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you don't know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, go back and read it in Genesis 19. It is heartbreaking, too, because we've got so much of that garbage going on today as well. In fact, I got a minister today, or a, a Methodist minister, at least that's what he claimed to be. And I was conversing with him, and he was lambasting. You don't know who Greg Abbott is. I mean, unless you live in the state of Texas where I do, he's the governor, and he's been doing things to try to... Uh, curb the border invasion, stuff like that. And 
along comes this Methodist minister, and he lambasts in a just a disgusting way uh, using the F-bomb. And I asked, <laughs> I asked, what kind of minister are you to be throwing around F-bombs at the governor of Texas when you're supposed to be subjecting yourself to him, especially when he's telling the truth? And, of course, this guy tried to spin it all around and justify himself, and then he comes back with a rather disgusting meme coming come from the old Brokeback Mountain uh, movie where there you got the two homosexuals. The guy, this guy turned out to be a homosexual as well, where he, just, he, he said, I just can't stop doing you. That's how disgusting... You know, it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's how disgusting it is today. They think they're going to get by with that. They're not part of the remnant. And yet many of them want to claim, I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. You aren't anything. You're an emissary of the devil, you moron. You fool. You non-believer. You idiot You're of your own device. You're on your way to hell, and you're mocking those that are trying to tell you the truth. If God would not have left a remnant, an offspring, they'd have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were totally destroyed. And some people like to say, well, that wasn't because of the sexuality. Yes, it was. That was part of it. That was the biggest part of it. But you still got sodomy laws today, although we don't want to enforce them because you know what? You got your rights. There is nothing right about homosexual perversion. Not one thing. It's still an abomination in God's sight. And yet you've got people today saying, you know, I'm going to be part of that remnant. I'm a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure you are. No, God is the one who is instrumental in redeeming the lost. It's his choice based on his mercy, his compassion, and his will. We've talked about before. And then so then Paul turns to another question. What should we say then about all of this? What are we going to say? It's not like there is a, uh, a contention here. It's that there is so much that's been packed of what, into what Paul has said up to this point here in Romans 9. He's going to come to a conclusion. What, what are we going to say? How do we conclude this? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. Those people who are not God's people have attained what was originally directed to the Jews. He says that is a righteousness that is by faith. The whole theme of the, the book of Romans, the theme by which Christians are supposed to live. They are to trust God unwaveringly. That's what the Gentiles have received. Righteousness, a right, sta- they're justified, a right standing before God. How do they do that? By faith. On the other hand, what else happened? Well, it says in verse 31, but that Israel, who pursued a law, presumably the, the Mosaic law, the Levitical law, uh, that would lead to righteousness. You know, and I think, I think this is interesting how Paul couches this here. It would lead to righteousness. Well, who's righteous? Well, it would be the person of Jesus. And Paul makes that perfectly clear that that was the purpose of the law, was to drive us as a tutor to Christ. That's what the law was intended to do for the nation of Israel. And some of them actually attained that. But he says, you know, this vast majority, uh, they didn't succeed in reaching that law. They didn't get to the goal, which was the person of Christ. And Paul's going to talk about that here in, in short order here in chapter 10. 
A lot of people like to say that the law has been abrogated, is no longer effect. No, that's not the word. That's not the idea that Paul is trying to stress there. It's not that the law is of totally non-effect and not applicable to today. Jesus said, you know, that there's not going to be one jot or tittle is going to be removed from the law until all of it is fulfilled. And he is the fulfillment. But what was given to Israel, they blew it. Why? Didn't they work hard enough at it? Didn't they sacrifice enough cattle, enough goats, enough birds? I mean, they were pretty hot and heavy doing that. You go back to the Old Testament, you read about it. I mean, it was a daily occurrence, and thousands and thousands of animals were sacrificed in Israel's behalf to atone for their sin. But the problem is they still fell on their face. They still ended up walking away in idolatry. Why? In fact, that's how verse 32 starts. Why did that happen? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They did not trust God. They did not run the pagans out of the land and ended up embracing many of their customs, kind of like we're doing today in the so-called Christian church. We're embracing the world, and we become more and more like it every day. And we're not living by faith, obviously. We're living by sight. Our works, we're offering up our turnips to God and say, well, isn't this pleasing to you, God? And God pukes. You want to use the book of Revelation as an example. Not, not warm, they're not cold. No, they make God sick. And I think a lot of what goes on in Christianity today makes God sick because we're so involved in all kind of pagan idolatry and sorcery, and we think that's what pleases God. No, Israel did not pursue it by faith. They weren't trusting God. But as it were, they were, they were basing it upon their works, their own efforts. And you Later on, this is going to lead, lead to this delusion on the part of the prophets and the priests saying, well, all is well. No, there's no judgment coming. Peace and safety to everybody. Go about your merry business. All is well. They were basing it upon their own effort. And what they end up doing is, he says here in verse 13, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Like they... You know, the, you, you go back to the Old Testament, that is the Lord. The Lord was the stumbling stone in, in the Old Testament. They missed, you know, depending on what he, how do you want to pronounce his name, Jehovah or Yahweh, they missed, they stumbled over him, the very person that brought them out of bondage. They stumbled over him. And we're stumbling over the Lord Jesus today with many people claiming to be Christians. Paul extends that, in fact, over in verse 33. But as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who could that possibly be? Who could that possibly be? Well, the, the, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that that stumbling stone is the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a stumbling stone. Why? Because people want to try to work their way into being part of the remnant rather than trusting in him solely. Sola fide. By faith alone, by grace alone, the person is justified, becomes a remnant, becomes part of God's family. God has laid that stumbling stone, and we're tripping over it today. We've got our own religiosity going on, just like the Jews did. Sometimes we rewrite our own ordinances and our rituals and kind of make it up as we go 
under, once again, the delusion that we're just not that bad. And we're falling on our face. And, we, and you know, while we're laying on our face, we're thinking we're standing up. We're standing for something while we're being trampled on by the world. God has laid a stumbling stone, the corners, the rock of offense. And, you know, it's, it's almost ironic in a way that so many people are offended by the person of Jesus and then turn around and use Jesus offensively. I saw a thing here recently. It was absolutely ridiculous. In fact, I think I saw it last night. Oh, Jesus was an Asian. I'm going, <laughs> what? <laughs> Jesus was a Jew. And in fact, I quoted to them uh, the, the, the person who, who made this comment. In fact, it, it, you can actually read the article in Christianity Today. That ought to tell you just how far Christianity Today has come or has gone off the rails. You know, that uh, Jesus was an Asian. And as somebody else pointed out, you know, this is almost like saying that water's wet. Because depending on how you're couching this, how you're describing this, isn't Israel in part of Asia, that part of the continent there? I, I think it is. So what are you saying? Oh, well, he was born in the East. Oh, well, that doesn't make any sense either. You're not saying anything. But you see, this is a problem with Christianity as well. We try for the wrong reasons, many of these so-called scholars, whatever, uh, to try to get noticed, and they have completely missed the boat. I'm, I'm, I'm stringing this out there, you know, so that I can can uh, be noticed as, as a great scholar or writer for Christianity Today. So I'm going to use these terms in a way where it's like, isn't that just profound? Like after the past 2,000 years, nobody thought of this before. And what they end up doing is they go <laughs> off the deep end. And they end up pushing a lie <laughs> rather than the truth. Or they say something that is just absolutely nonsensical. I quoted them what we had just studied in Romans chapter 9. They are, in verse 5, remember, this passage or this verse that deals with the deity of Jesus, to them, to, to the Jews, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God, overall, blessed forever, amen. Jesus was from the race of the Jews. So unless you're going to clarify this thing about Jesus being Asian, you've said nothing. Yeah, otherwise, you're lying. But that's where we're at in our world today. Jesus is a stumbling block and a rock of offense to many. In fact, he's been relegated by many to the, to the closet of irrelevance. Uh, he's, he's the whole idea about Christ and antiquity and the like. Well, that's, that's just the vogue today. It doesn't. We can't go down. We've got to be reasonable and rational if we're going to solve our problem. No, it's because you were reasonable and rational in a secular sense and divorced yourself from God that we're in our mess today. And now you're trying to use a mess to try to clean up the mess. This was Israel's, you know, way of falling on his face. They missed the Lord the first time around, and they're missing him the second time around. In fact, you name the name of Jesus in Israel today is a rock of offense. Well, this doesn't mean there aren't Messianic Jews there, but Jesus, for the most part, to his own people, is a nasty word. No, he's the, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And he's the one who's doing the electing today. And once again, we got our jingle going on here, which means we've come to the end of another episode. If you have any questions or comments, podcast at capro.info. If you want to support the program here, head on over to the capro.info website. There's a donation button there. Up to you. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope this encourages you to be a Christian because... It's okay. 
all right to be a Christian. Till next time, you take care, and we will talk to you later.